0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not getting a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
1: Angie Thomas came from one of the worst neighborhoods in Jackson, Mississippi.
2: All of us know about that one neighborhood, and every major city is known for all the wrong reasons, unfortunately, Hmm. um, where you know you don't go there unless you have to go there.
1: But things have changed for her. She met a literary agent on Twitter. Then she wrote a little bestseller called The Hate You Give. She's a big deal now, and she's adjusting to a very different life.
2: Because I bought a house and I put my mom in the house with me. And even though I paid a mortgage, she'll get on me about my room. And I'm looking at her <laughs> as I say it. Um,
1: mom, you want to go on the mic? I have to give her a chance to offer some rebuttal.
2: Come no, on, Mom. No. She's talking about looking at me. I'm looking at her, too. Because my room is a mess right yes. now. <laughs> From NPR,
1: I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. My guest today is Angie Thomas. She is the author, as I said previously, of The Hate U Give, the number one New York Times best-selling young adult novel. This book tells the story of Starr Carter, a 16-year-old girl grappling with the death of a friend who was shot and killed while unarmed by a police officer. Now Angie Thomas is out with her second book. It's called On the Come Up. This one's all about a young girl named Bree who wants to be one of the greatest rappers of all time But then one of her songs goes viral in a very unexpected way. Angie and I talked about both of those books, about how she is proving there's actually an audience, a huge audience for black stories in young adult literature. And we talk about how she's moved on up and why that's a bit complicated for her. All right, here's Angie Thomas and me. Angie was with her mom, who was mostly there just to listen. Uh, They were in Jackson, Mississippi. Enjoy. (laughs) You write these epic rap battle scenes in the book, and I haven't, like, been transported into the feel of a rap battle that expertly since, like, 8 Mile. (laughs) It was really good. And I I kept thinking the whole time. I was like, I bet you Angie Thomas has been in her own rap battle before. You must have been, right? (laughs) That's all I kept thinking.
2: Well, okay. Here's the thing. Um, first, I'm so happy you brought up the whole 8 Mile thing because that was like an influence on me when I was really? writing the book. In fact, I named um, the gym where they go to battle. I named it Jimmy's because that was the name of Eminem's character in yeah. 8 Mile. So that was like oh. my way of paying homage to that. Yeah. That's such a
1: good movie. That movie, like I have mixed feelings about Eminem, but that, mm-hmm. movie, but that movie still slaps.
2: <laughs> yes, that movie. That movie is a classic. Yeah. Um, but I, I personally didn't battle battle when i was a teen i was a rapper when i was a teenager but i wasn't really good at it uh, <laughs> <laughs> i can admit that now um when i would do like rap battles i wouldn't even really call them battles because i would go and and it was supposed to be freestyles but i would be doing stuff that i already wrote you know mm. or sometimes well, no no right Right. That's a no-no. Pre-written is a no-no. So I hoped that with writing these scenes and with showing people the ins and outs of it and, and the internal part of it, of coming up with freestyles on the spot, that maybe just maybe more people will respect it as an art form, you know, but I can't do it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but you are like kind of writing some songs in the book. Like you. OK, so this kid that Bree battles, he kind of has this minor hit in the neighborhood called Swaggerific. And the way you write out the lyrics, it makes me think that you've actually written a song in your head called Swaggerific. And I'm not going to (laughs) ask you to sing it, but I am going to ask you to sing it.
2: It's you know the thing about Swaggerific is that it's it's a simple song and the thing is so so many of these hit songs are simple you know yeah. I'm not gonna yeah. call anything out but if you really pay attention to some of these songs it's literally just like a hook is just a, one word or a couple of words being repeated over and over and over so with Swaggerific I was just following that. That um I don't want to call it mumble rap, but um you can call it mumble it, rap. A, okay, yeah, mumble rap too. You know they follow a certain a certain rhythm. So swaggerific was just following that. It goes swag orific. So call hey. me terrific. Swag terrific. Hey. Swag hey. hey swag swag ah. swag. Ah. I get it. I get it.
0: <laughs> now if this okay.
2: becomes an actual song, I'm gonna just. <laughs> <laughs> I will quit being an author if that becomes an actual song.
1: You better give me your producer credit. Right, I'm right, kidding. But, I'm kidding.
2: But, you know, and then, too, with the title song, you know, On the Come Up. You Can't Stop yeah. Me on the Come Up. You Can't Stop Me on the Come Up. That's, that's following that whole thing, too, that we see now It's a certain rhythm that rappers yeah. follow with hooks yeah. and everything. So, yeah, I was just paying attention to what's going on, but... I try to just stay in the know, and I listen a lot to young people. I think as a writer, you have to listen to the people you're writing about, so I mm. listen a lot.
1: Yeah. Where do you find these youths to listen to? I realize many <laughs> days. like there's some days where I don't interact with young people, you know? Because like, mm-hmm. I'm at work, and I'm at home, and I'm with friends.
2: Well, you know what? I get a whole lot of interactions through social media especially wow. instagram you know yeah. I've, I've come to realize like facebook that's where i talk to the teachers and librarians who love the book you mm. know um twitter twitter is like the they're they're not as old but they're not teenagers and then instagram uh, uh. that's where the teenagers are you know <laughs> <laughs> they 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 come into my my dms or they comment on really? my posts and things like that and then even at my signings and stuff like once it was announced that my new book was about a rapper i've had so many kids who've come to me at my signings and they're like i'm a rapper, can I I rap for you, Miss Angie, and I Aww. let them do it. You know, really, and I let them do it. I'm going to start posting them on my page if they oh give if their parents give permission. But <laughs> it's it's if nothing else, it it I get to interact with them and talk with them um, while on the road and stuff. So I, I absolutely love it because. I'm glad to know that they feel like I speak for them. I think as a writer, as a young adult author, my biggest fear is that at some point I'm going to become the old lady writing books and trying to act cool. But right now they think I'm cool, so we're good.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Stay stay with that. I also love that you are letting young people know that rap and reading a book can go hand in hand and often do. You know, I think that there is, for some, for some who don't get it, and who don't get hip hop. There's this perception that it, that rap is something other than intellectual, when in fact, it's actually very, very, very much that. And I like mm-hmm. that you are saying, oh, here's this accomplished author that will also listen to your mixtape.
2: Yes. Absolutely. (laughs) I've been to it. You know, I I often say, you know, my my biggest literary influences are rappers. I want to write the way that rappers rap. You Mm. know, they were telling the stories I saw myself in when I was a kid when books didn't. So, and the reason that so many young people gravitate towards hip hop is because it keeps it real with them. You know, it keeps it 100 with them, as they say. It's authentic. It's raw. It doesn't hold back. And as a writer, I need to do the same thing with them or they will call me out. You know, you know Mm. why so many kids Locked to the hate you give was because Mm. it was getting banned left and right in schools. And when you're telling kids that this is something that we don't think you're ready for, that's the very thing that they feel they are ready for. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And then they want it more.
2: Exactly. Exactly. So I definitely feel like it goes hand in hand in that sense that if I'm going to write for them, I want to write the same way that a rapper would rap to them.
1: Mm. Speaking of rap, your new book, which I'm devouring, On the Come Up. um, How much of a description of this book can you? Tell your listeners, our listeners, without, like, spoilers.
2: Yeah, sure. On the come up, um, I always have to say this at the beginning. It's not a sequel or a spinoff to The Hate You Give. Okay. Um, I get a lot of questions about, am I doing a sequel? I have no plans for a sequel right now because I think Star needs a break from me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But it is set in the same neighborhood as The Hate You Give, and it is about a 16-year-old girl named Brianna who wants to be a rapper. And her life is turned upside down when one— Her mom unexpectedly loses her job. And two, a song she makes goes viral for all the wrong reasons. And she finds herself in the center of a controversy that's too big for her to control. But because of the fact that she's a young black person in America, she's not given national interviews to make herself seem innocent. She's seen as a villain in this narrative. But as her family situation gets worse, she finds herself desperate to make it, even if it means becoming the very thing people have made her out to be.
1: So... This book is set in the same neighborhood as your first book, The Hate You Give, uh, Garden Heights. Uh, Describe that neighborhood for us and then tell me why you chose the same neighborhood, but a different character and a different plot for this new book.
2: Garden Heights is loosely based on the neighborhood where I grew up here in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, Garden Heights is that neighborhood that... All of us know about that one neighborhood in every major city um, where you know you don't go there. You know, every every city has at least hmm. one neighborhood where you don't go there unless you have to go there. Mm-hmm. I decided to return there for a couple of reasons. Um, for one, for me, it feels so much like home because, like I was saying, it's based on my own neighborhood. But hmm. after the events of The Hate You Give— I thought it was important to return to this neighborhood. You know, we hmm. saw what happened at the end of The Hate you Give with the community and mm-hmm. the uprising in response to Khalil's murder. But when we see these things happen in real life, nobody really takes the time to find out, well, what's the neighborhood like now? You hmm. know, what's Ferguson like now? And right. it felt very... Fitting to go back there, too, and to start Brie's story in the aftermath of Khalil. Um, I often compare Brie to hip-hop itself, you know, Mm. and hip-hop started, you know, in the Bronx— after the Bronx burnings when there was so much chaos in that hmm. in that borough. And so now we're in Garden Heights after so much chaos in this neighborhood and this young lady has managed to find her voice through an art form just like those kids in the Bronx did back in the 70s. So it just felt fitting to return there and find someone who is figuring out how to use their voice to make themselves heard.
1: Yeah. What I love about On the Come Up and what I love about Brie and her story, like it's as much about her story and how she sees the world as it is about the way the rest of the world sees Brie. Uh, this young, talented person of color, young woman who is obviously gifted, but like very misunderstood. Mm-hmm. And you also write about how like her entire neighborhood is misunderstood, particularly in the aftermath of some rioting that takes place in Garden Heights. There's this line you have that just stopped me in my tracks when you were describing <clears throat> how this kind of community is treated after a police-involved shooting. You said it was like having a stranger come in your house, steal one of your kids, and blame you for it because your family was dysfunctional while the whole world judges you for being upset.
2: mm mm-hmm. Man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Do you feel yeah. that way about, I don't know, the news and things in the news tied to some of the stuff that you tackle you know, in this book and the previous one.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think for so many of us, the frustrating part is that when these incidents happen, um, the blame immediately goes to the communities or to the families or even the victims themselves. You know, I think Trayvon Martin is blamed for his own death by more people than George Zimmerman is blamed for it. Oh, yeah. and And you wonder, why is this? Why is it that particularly black people are always found at fault when we're really the victims in so many of these instances. So, yeah, that line, that that, that comes from me and myself. But I also hope that it makes people think about why is it that black people are never given the benefit of the doubt? Why is yeah. it that we're always blamed even when we're victims? What does that say about this country and about us as a society?
1: And the thing I wonder with that, it's like, all right, we're, what, five or six years into the Black Lives Matter movement, and there are mm-hmm. some days when I question if that movement has changed any of that sentiment that you just spoke of. Like, mm-hmm. is the way some people want to see black suffering, has it been changed at all by all the protests, by all the marches, by all the movement? I don't know some days. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. It's, it's hard it's, for me to say. <laughs> really?
2: Yeah, Because it it's, it's like it's I want to
1: be encouraged, but I don't, I don't know. Do you, do you think it's getting better?
2: You know, I think what's happening right now is that um we're in such a time of turmoil that so many of these stories are being lost in the headlines when you have you know political leaders who are serving fast food to football players that becomes the headline not the young black mm. unarmed black person who was killed by a cop that's no mm. longer the headlines now people are we're people are distracted um by shenanigans you know so yeah. um but then on the same at the same time I'm seeing some changes you know I can say personally, I've seen changes. Um, I've had a chance to tour the world because of the hate you give. And I've talked to people around the world um, about the Black Lives Matter movement and things like that. And the fact that I had, you know, like a 90-year-old white woman who came to me in tears at a signing and she told me she loves the book and she gets it now. That gives me hope. Mm. But on a large scale, it feels at times like as a society, we haven't made much. um, Mm. We haven't made many changes.
1: Mm. Yeah. You know, I was thinking a lot about how you want to position your work and your books in that push for change. I had the most interesting conversation with a white friend of mine who uh, had finished The Hate You Give probably a few months ago, and he knew that I was going to talk to him, was excited about it. And he said his big question as a white adult reading this book, he was like, is Angie writing these books primarily for young black kids to better see themselves or for young white kids to better see a world they don't know? Or is it somewhere in the middle? I mean, it's not, I mean, it's not as simple as like, is this for black kids or for white kids question, but like, I wonder Mm -hmm. how you navigate that because based on who you are as a kid reading this, it is a different experience, right?
2: Absolutely. You know, and, um, I often say that my priority, um, my priority is those black kids. They don't get Mm. enough books about themselves. Mm. You know, they don't, they aren't given enough, enough mirrors to see themselves. Um, Dr. Rudine Sims-Bishops, who's a wonderful academic um, in children's literature, she says that books are either mirrors, windows, or sliding glass doors. And I think it's important for my books to be all three. Um, Mm. So I I always think of those kids, especially in my old neighborhood, who say, I hate reading. And why do they say that? Because they rarely see themselves in books. So I'm always going to think about them first and if it creates a mirror a window wonderful that's that's great but always always the priority Um, my priority is those black kids
1: all right time for a break when we come back i ask angie how young is too young for kids to read her books brb support for this podcast and the
0: following message come from sierra nevada brewing company In 1980, with a few thousand dollars and used dairy equipment, Ken Grossman founded Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Ken's award-winning ales propelled him from home brewer to craft brewer. Today, Ken and his family still own 100% of the company, one of the most successful independent craft breweries in America. More at
1: sierranevada.com.
2: Every day on her way to
1: and from work... Laura Bates, like millions of women around the world, suffered indignities, big and small.
2: It just made me sit down and and ask myself, why is this normal?
1: She launched a website called Everyday Sexism, and thousands of women, and even some men, started to share their stories too. Ideas around gender and power on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. When do you know as a writer of young adult content— When kids are ready for the serious issues you you raise in your books.
2: You know, it's hard for me to say because I think it depends on the kid. Mm. I've had eight-year-olds write to me directly. And say that they love the hate you give. And I'm like, does your mama know you read that? You know? know? But he wrote me this letter and I got to respond to him. But he wrote me this letter and he said, I love your book and keep doing what you're doing. You're making a difference and the world is going to be a better place because you're in it. And it made me cry. But the Mm. fact is, he's eight. And what also, what really got me about it, though, was the fact that he mentioned that his mom got him the book. And that made me say, huh, your mom thought that at eight years old, you needed You're to ready. read this book. That mm. means that you are aware of something that an eight-year-old should not have to be aware of. Mm. And I'm glad that my book was there for him, but I'm sad that he had to be at that point. Mm. You know, I, I had a lot of white parents say, I'm not sure. I had a white parent tell me, I'm not sure my... 13-year-old is ready to read The Hate U Give. And Mm. I said, well, just think of this. There are black parents of eight-year-olds who have to have these conversations. Mm -hmm. If you only have to worry about your child reading about it, consider yourself blessed. Come on. That's privilege.
1: Mm. One of the things that I love about your career is that on top of just making good books, you are trying to make a good industry for books. And you have spoken out a lot about the lack of diversity in publishing, particularly the lack of diversity in publishing of children's books. You've even gone so far mm-hmm. as to call out your own publisher, HarperCollins, and say when you were a kid, they weren't making books for you. Um, years into this work now, do you think that's getting better?
2: I do. Um, I do. Um, we're seeing more and more books um, featuring kids of color and just marginalized kids, period, at the forefront. You know, There was one time just a few months ago where – half of the books on the New York Times bestseller list start kids of color and that huh. was amazing you know that was incredible to see yeah. and and it's showing them that yeah these books can sell these books can sell well too um but on the flip side my fear is that and i and i take i, I part part of me feels guilty about this but on the flip side my fear is that they're assuming that only issue books so called issue books mm. can be acquired about kids of color you know the Hate You Give and On The Come Up, people are calling them important books, and that's great. But let's also have Can We Get a Twilight featuring Black Kids? You know, can can we can we get romantic comedies featuring black kids, rom-coms? Can we can we just have stories with them just being and just doing? Can we get even crappy books about black kids? Every book doesn't have to, you know, there are plenty of crappy books out there. Every book does not have to be stellar because it's about a kid of color or by a person of color. Yeah. So, I'm seeing changes and I want to see more changes, but I really want to see more changes within publishing itself, within the offices themselves. And I'm thankful because my publisher is amazing. My editor, she's amazing. Balls and Bray, they are one of the most diverse imprints out there. Hmm. And I'm so proud of them and the work they're doing. Um, Of the three of the big YA movies that came out last year, they um, published most of them. Really? and 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 they were all about characters that you wouldn't see necessarily at the forefront but they made us all they put us all at the forefront so this was hate to give and
1: um what else as far as movies
2: um love simon Oh, yeah. Which was based on Simon versus the Homo sapiens agenda. Um, Dumplin, which was based on the book Dumplin, which was about a a fat girl. And then um, there was The Miseducation of Cameron Post, which was about um, LGBTQIA kids. So they did Mm -hmm. all of those books and they all became amazing movies. Um, And so they're showing, yeah. (laughs) So they're showing, publishing that diverse books should be given just as much attention as any other books, but also they're showing that there can be a wide, a wide range of diverse books. So I mean, shout out to my publisher. They're doing it right. Shout out.
1: They, <laughs> love it. they want to love this interview. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All
1: right, time for one more break. When we come back, how Angie found her literary agent on Twitter while working as a church secretary in Jackson, Mississippi. BRB.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Discover.
1: I'm Maria Hinojosa, and next time on Latino USA, we're joined by Gina Rodriguez, the award-winning actress and star of the show, Jane the Virgin. She talks to us about how growing up in a Puerto Rican family in Chicago made her the performer she is today. And she talks about new projects like her upcoming film, Miss Bala. That's next time on Latino USA. Another thing I love about your story is... How it shows that, like, in terms of, like, diversifying publishing, mm-hmm. there also has to be a reconception of what the pipeline even looks like. I think that there is a very traditional path one goes about to get a book published. And your story prove that you don't have to have that path. You found your agent on Twitter? Yeah. Tell folks that story. It's amazing.
2: Yeah. Um, I was um, in the middle of finishing up my edits on The Hate You Give, and I was considering sending it out to literary agents. But, like, a few weeks earlier, a study had come out saying that that year alone, there were more books— featuring animals and trucks as the main characters than black kids. Good God. And for me, I know, and for me, I was like, wait, what? First of all, what? And then knowing that, I, <laughs> knowing that I have this book about this black girl, and not just a book about a black girl, but a book about that's inspired by the Black Lives Matter movement, mm-hmm. I immediately thought, there is no way I have a shot. So I was actually at my job. Um, I worked at a church at the time, and I was on my lunch break, and I signed on Twitter and I saw that a literary agency was holding a question and answer session. Basically, um, aspiring writers could just ask publishing related questions and get a response. You know, there are so many things so many of us want to know, but we're so often afraid to ask. And here they were giving us a chance to ask, even if we sounded stupid. So mm-hmm. um, I just asked the question using the hashtag. I was like, um, are books that deal with sensitive issues a no-no? And Hmm. I wasn't even sure how to word it, but I was like, let's just put it like that. (laughs) And so this agent, Brooks Sherman, he responded and he was like, what kind of issues? And Hmm. I said, the the Black Lives Matter movement. I have a young adult book dealing with that. And he said, I don't think that any topic is off topic in young adult books. It's all about how you approach it. Hmm. And I said, well, I hope I did it right. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, well, I'd actually like to read it. So The rest is history. (laughs) Yeah. I emailed it to him. And he read it, loved it, and signed me. And maybe three months after signing me, we went on submission to publishers, and 13 U.S. publishers fought for the rights to this book. Wow. So Twitter is good for something. <laughs> I'm very thankful to Jack for that. If nothing else,
1: <laughs> <laughs> talk about Jack. I'm very... Yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness! I also love like the entire backstory of the Hate You Give. Like, mm-hmm. and I don't want to tell your story. I want you to tell it. But like, you started writing this book like in college at what is it, Bellhaven University?
2: Yeah, Bellhaven University. It's a liberal arts school here in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, I was in the creative writing program i was actually the first black student to graduate from the creative writing program and that's really just because the program was young Mm -hmm. um i think i was part of the third or fourth graduating class but still i was the first black student but then that also meant i was the only black student a lot of times so like when stuff like slavery got discussed everybody looked at me (laughs) as if i was there (laughs) you know
1: (laughs) you're like i'm not (laughs) harriet (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I often found myself being two different people in two very different worlds. I still lived in my old neighborhood, and although it was like 10 minutes away from Bell Haven, it was an entirely different world. Um, if you've read the book The Help or watched the movie, like the neighborhood where the maids worked, that's mm-hmm. where my school is. Mm. So it was totally different from my hood, you know? Yeah. Um, and I found myself just changing who I was, where I was often, but... um while I was in school, a young man named Oscar Grant lost his life in Oakland, California. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know him personally, but I took his death very personally. Um, Oscar, the last day of his life is the subject of the movie Fruitvale Station, Yeah. Um, for those who don't know. So I wrote I wrote a short story about a boy named Khalil who was a lot like Oscar and a mm. girl named Star who lived in those two different worlds like I did. So that's mm. essentially how The Hate You Give was born. It was my senior project for college. Mm. So you're still in Jackson? For now, yeah. And you grew up there? Yes. It must have given
1: you such a rich sense of history to come from there. and to be, mm-hmm. I mean, like, it's a place full of history. I was reading, what, you grew up, like, three minutes away from Medgar Evers' home. Your mother heard the shot that killed him. Like, you, like you're walking amidst history in Jackson, Mississippi. I'm sure it must affect the way you write and how you write
2: Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, um, Mississippi is known for two things, um, racism and writing. And I happen to be a writer who writes about racism. (laughs) 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 It was kind of inevitable. But, yeah, yeah, you know, I I think it was William Faulkner who once said, if you can understand Mississippi, you can understand America Mm. because— What happens here, it happens all over the country, you know, and the history we have here is America's history. And and for me, I have to say, you know, I have to admit, like, I'm struggling with it now. Do I stay or do I leave? Because as a Mississippian, um, the relationship with this state often feels like a relationship with an emotionally abusive parent. You still love them, but at times you're like, I don't need this. This is toxic.
1: But you're staying for a while. You could easily Um, move anywhere you wanted to at this point. Right yeah <laughs> i I'm,
2: I'm I'm definitely considering at least just living here part time within the next year or so really? um, and just making it a part- time residence. yeah I'm still trying to decide it because okay. the struggle for me is I like staying because. If nothing else, I give the kids here an example and show mm. them what's possible. Mm. You know, Nelson Mandela, Mandela always said that he made sure he shook people's hands because he wanted them to feel what's possible. So I want kids in Mississippi yeah. to see me, to know yeah. what's possible. I grew up knowing that Oprah was from here, but Come it on. didn't click that Oprah was from here because I didn't see Oprah. She is more than welcome to fix that by coming to <laughs> my house or something. But uh, <laughs> I love you, Oprah. There was no shade <laughs> at you. I, you know, but I knew she was from here. But I wasn't used to seeing people every day or even just around town
1: Mm. and knowing
2: that they were doing things like this and Mm. they were still here, that it was possible. So that's Mm. why it's a struggle for me to decide whether to stay or to leave.
1: Yeah. A thing I read about you um, was that since your career took off, you moved um, into a gated neighborhood. (laughs) Yeah. How does that feel? I mean, particularly writing about the communities that you write about in your books Mm-hmm. Did you feel like you were leaving some of that reality when you moved on up?
2: Oh, yeah. I had a struggle like Maverick struggled in The Hate You Give. You know, like, mm-hmm. if does leaving change who I am? And I had to just realize that it doesn't. You know, the weird thing about specifically the Metro Jackson area is that mm-hmm. a lot of the nice neighborhoods and safe neighborhoods are gated. And, hmm. and it always makes me think of this line that CeeLo Green had in one of the uh, Goody Mob songs, he says, "But every now and then, I wonder if the gate was put up to keep crime out or keep mm. i in." Mm. I think about that a lot yeah. when I see <laughs> yeah. when I see these gated neighborhoods. So, moving into one, I was like, "Huh." But I had to come to the realization, like Maverick does in the book, just because I live don't live there doesn't mean I don't care about what happens there. So, mm. I'm making investments into that community. I'm, I want to do things to continue to improve that community even if I don't live there. I had to move for safety sakes, you know, because when all dope boys start saying, oh, she got money, you need to leave. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I still care about what happens there, and I'm still investing into that community. Yeah. So, you know, it doesn't matter if you live there or not, you just need to care about it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, thinking about moving on up, like I'm sure not just your location, but maybe everything about your life changed since the crazy, amazing success of The Hate You Give. Like, how different is your life, I guess, from, like, church secretary to now?
2: Oh, it's totally different. Before the book came out, um, I'd only ever traveled to Alabama and Memphis, and those two don't count. You know? (laughs) Those are, like... That's like being an extended Mississippi, you know. <laughs> but um, I, before that, I had never traveled, and now I've been to several countries. You know, mm. I I'd never been on a plane before, and now mm. I'm like diamond on Delta. You know, I'm flying okay. all the time. You know, <laughs> so that's that's changed, and 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 just being now a, a a recognizable person. You know, I was in Kroger the other week, and somebody recognized me, and I'm like dang, I just can't come out the house now and look any kind of way. Somebody's going to be like, Andy Thomas was in Kroger in her robe. What? You know, I can't do that. Yeah. So yeah. that that I, people recognize me now. But I'm thankful that, you know, with my family, I'm still the same. Everything's still the same, you know. Um, yeah. My mom will still get on my case about my room looking a mess because I bought a house and I put my mom in the house with me. And even though I paid a mortgage, she'll get on me about my room. And I'm looking at <laughs> her as I say it.
1: Um, <laughs> mom, you want to go on the mic? I have to give her a chance to... To offer some rebuttal,
2: come no, on, Mom, no. come on, put on the mic. And she's talking about looking at me. I'm looking at her too. Because my room is a mess right yes. now. I love it.
1: Do you promise right now, Miss Thomas, to clean your room after this interview?
2: I will clean my room when I get home. <laughs> Yes, she will. See, a, see, that's what I mean. I love it. Some things, some things haven't changed. I'm thankful yep. for that. I'm thankful that yeah. that's, that's the same. You know, even though I'm 31 <laughs> years old, that's still uh, the same. If you're
1: 92, I'm still mom. Okay. Oh, come on. Come on, mom.
2: All right, come let's on. move the mic.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: oh, I love this.
1: I love this.
2: <laughs> so yeah some things are still the same and i'm very thankful for that
1: <laughs> yes yes oh man i tell you what this interview it was swaggerific <laughs> i had so much fun
2: i had so I much did fun too. yeah <laughs>
1: I'm so grateful for your time, for your mother's time, for your body of work.
2: Thank you. This was this was probably the most fun I've had on an interview, so thank you.
1: Oh, I appreciate that. You take care.
2: You too. Bye.
1: Bye-bye. Many thanks to Angie Thomas and her mother. Angie's new book is called On the Come Up. It's out now. Uh, special thanks to NPR's Barry Hardiman for her help on this episode. Also, thanks to Jay White and the staff at Mississippi Public Broadcasting in Jackson. All right, listeners, as always, Friday is coming. That means we're going to have another weekly wrap of all the news that's fit to laugh about in your feed soon. It's also a chance for you to share with me the best thing that's happened to you all week. It's very simple to do this. Just record yourself, like on your phone or whatever, and send that audio file to me via email at samsanders at npr.org, samsanders at npr.org. Also, while you're doing things on your phone... If you like this show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other people find the show. It helps me feel good about myself. It is just a win-win all around. Okay, till Friday. Thank you for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR.
0: This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor Lisa in collaboration with West Elm. Discover the new natural hybrid mattress, expertly crafted from natural latex and certified safe foams, designed with your health and the planet in mind. Visit leesa.com to learn more. This message comes from The Run-Through with Vogue. Listen as designers, Vogue editors, and industry icons like Erica Badu and Florence Pugh have in-depth conversations about fashion and culture. New episodes are released each Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.